everybody. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Liz. And I'm Taylor. And now we're talking, Darian. Hello and welcome. Today is April 28th. And today is a special episode. I am looking forward to welcoming Chief Anderson and Captain Marin of the Darien Police Department to the podcast. Um, as we considered who to bring on in these early episodes, uh, you know, the, the pillars of our community, the people who make Darien so special, I, I had to get these guys on the list. I mean, they are truly one of the reasons that Darien is such a wonderful place to live. I know. Although it's difficult. I mean, no, I, it goes without saying it's a difficult time to be a police officer. So, um, yeah. I mean, this could be a long conversation because there's just so much to ask these guys of where their heads are at right now. So I'm super curious, but I have nothing but respect and admiration for anyone that leaves their families every day to put their life on the line for other people. So, um, well said. yeah, let's see what happens when they're in here and Darian's left chiefless and captainless for the next two hours, right? <laughs> yes. All right. Let's bring them in. Chief Anderson and Captain Marin, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, we're so excited. Where to start? I mean, look at you guys right now. I'm kind of laughing because you guys are just funny jokers. You walk in here with some some fun stories to start us off. Well, I think you'll find that neither one of us takes ourselves all that seriously, but we take the job very seriously. But That's know. perfect. Well, you guys are both like multiple people have told us that you guys come from long cop families, right? We do, yeah. Here in Darien, both uh, Jerry Marins and my dad worked together. As a matter of fact, that before I was promoted to chief, uh, I was the captain of the Administrative Services Bureau. Jerry was the captain of the Field Sur Services Bureau. And both our fathers staffed those exact positions in 1983 when I came on. No they were kidding. in the exact same position at the same time. Wow. In Darien? In Darien. I don't even know, by the way, what those bureaus are. Should I know as a citizen? Well, field services are what you see out on the road, the officers out in a marked patrol car and in the investigative section. Okay. When I was the administrative services captain, I did all the things that were really not glamorous and behind the scenes. You do budgeting, you do uh, facilities management, you do building security. The stuff you go to the police academy for and work on real hard right. outside. It, it, it never makes the front page of the paper. Right. It's the stuff that makes the police department tick. It's not, it's not things that are cop shows are made out of, right? But and Captain Shredders is in charge of that now, right? He is, yep. I'm sorry he's not here. We're going to have to get another microphone. Yeah. Oh. How old are you, can I ask? Sure. I, I'm, I'm 58, but I, oh I started here when I was 20, so I've been here for well more than half of my life. I love it. So... I mean, I want to know more about your dads and growing up. And so your dad was a Navy serviceman, right? He was. That's yeah. really cool. And then went into law enforcement. And did you grow up wanting to be a police officer? I always kind of grew up with the advice that I wasn't going to be allowed to be a police officer for my parents. Really? Um, but uh, as I entered college, it was really kind of the only thing that interested me at the time. And you start taking the courses. And, you know, although I don't know how I would ever have done if I had to work under my dad. You could ask the chief that he right, had to work guys. with his dad, but I didn't. Um, it was a difficult decision to make at 21 years old, but I'm glad I made it. So you worked with your dad for 10 years, right? Yeah, we overlapped from 1983 to 1993. Uh, when I took the test for the police department in the summer of 1983, my dad was a lieutenant. And by the time I was hired in December of 83, he had been promoted to captain. And uh, then kind of as now, patrolmen don't really interact that much with the captain or the chief. So I really never worked for him or with him. Yes, he worked in the same building, but I didn't see him at work virtually never. So, Can I ask you, what number, how many chiefs have there been in Darien? I'm chief number 11. Number 11. Mm -hmm. 
do you just worry, Chief, that the phone's going to ring every, like, every time you close your eyes? Uh, we have good staff, and we have good supervision. But in this day and age, yes, sleep doesn't come quite as easy as it has in the past. Uh, I'm hoping we can get back to some new normal. It's just with the pandemic and other things that have happened in the last year and a half, yes, it's problematic for law enforcement administrators across the country. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we can go right into it. It's obviously a difficult time to be a police officer. Um, I will say, I, you know, in looking through, you know, getting ready for this interview, I looked at your Facebook page, and I love the quote that you have up there, and I'll read it because it's, it's exactly the way you seem to operate. Um, no matter how educated, talented, rich, or cool you believe you are, how you treat people ultimately tells all. Integrity is everything. That's awesome. I mean, that's exactly how our police officers should behave and, and I believe do behave in Darianne, and thank you. Well, I believe it as well, and uh, that goes to, to a large part for the, the police commission overseeing proper hiring practices, and then once officers get here, they are properly supervised. Is the police commission, is there one for Connecticut? Is I, I'm lacking understanding even within your structure, like how, how even large Darien police force is. Can you guys give us a structural overview? I'll, I'll let the chief um, speak on in the, kind of the history of the police commission, but the way we're structured, we have 51 officers. We're short by a, a couple at this point. Um, we're overseen by a, a three-person police commission, and um, I believe that currently we have eight sergeants, five lieutenants, two captains, and when we're back up to full strength, we should have 37 patrol officers. So you said you get the police commission is what brings your hire that literally? Yeah. The, the, the three-member police commission are civilians that are report, appointed by the Board of Selectmen. They have complete oversight of the police department. So in a lot of towns that are clamoring for a civilian review board or some kind of... We have always had that for 90s, whatever it is, 95 years, we've had uh, civilian oversight of the police department, and it has always worked very, very well. There are bosses, and thankfully I have three very good ones right now. It seems like the hiring is the key to all of it, right? Like the success of the force and also the training. I mean, I've read about your training being exceptionally good. Hiring and training is the name of the game. And I, I, I tell this to people on a regular basis. The officers that we pass on, because we simply have such a, a, a high-quality candidate pool many times, they go on to other careers in police departments. And, you know, five, six, ten years down the road, you're seeing them as a sergeant, lieutenant investigator. Not that there's anything wrong with these. We just are, have always been fortunate enough to take the best of the best in our hiring process. Why did you guys come to work in Darien and why are we attracting such great candidates? I came to work in Darien because I took my first and only entry-level police test for the Darien Police Department and got hired. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth of the matter. And was your family living in Darien? We lived in Stanford. I was born and raised in Stanford. My, my mother and father were Stanford folks their whole life. But, Captain Marin, you grew up in town, right? I did, yeah, and it's kind of a similar story. I, I, in 1995, I took the entry-level test, you know, recognizing that the benefits package was great here in Darien. I was pretty much intimately familiar with the police department, as I'd been coming here, since, visiting at least, since I was born. And I took the Darien test and New Canaan test, and um, in January of 1996, I got offered a spot with a couple other people that took the test with me. It's different now than it was in the dark ages of 1983 when I came out. Right? <laughs> college, college was not a requirement for a police officer in 1983. 
Okay. It is now? It is now. You, you have to have 60 credits to be considered for employment with the Town of Darien Police Department. When you're hired as a police officer, you have to go to the six-month Connecticut Police Academy to be certified. So you get trained post-hiring. Right. Where in a lot of other states, you get trained, and then you go to the police department, and they just train you on their particular uh, SOPs. What would you prefer, though? Would, would you guys rather prefer to train your own people, or do you have confidence in the training facility where your guys are sent and they come back? I have a high level of confidence uh, in the post-C training academy, which is the police officer standard and training council in Connecticut. But you're not done when you get trained after the six months there. You have to come back here and do 400 hours of field training with us, where we, our field training officers watch you to ensure that you're properly implementing the training that you got at the police academy. That's amazing. 400 yeah. hours. How, how, how long does that take? That's 10 weeks. You still do the math list. Yeah, I don't know. How many hours a day? <laughs> from the time, from the time there, that but. the police commission swears you in as a probationary police officer here to the time that you are ready to go on your own is just about a year. Yeah. A and full go year. Back to the hiring. Like, Did you say you're involved in hiring at all, or is it only the police commission? No. When we, when we give a test... Uh, usually an outside firm gives the written test. Then the candidate comes in and is vetted by a panel of police officers okay. of different ranks. They call that list, and, and they'll send typically the police commission and me the top five or six candidates that they have identified. Okay. They go in to see the police commission, and typically I'm in that uh, interview as well. And ultimately the decision is made by the police commission, who they think is the best candidate. And as of late, over the last 10 years, we have taken um, officer candidates from every walk of life. They, they've changing careers. We have one officer that was a, a physical ed teacher. And we That's had, awesome. They, they come from different walks of life, because especially in this day and age, there's a lot of different qualities that you need to be an effective police officer. Yeah, tell us about the diversity within the force. So 51 officers, how many are women? How many are minorities? Do you know off the top of your head? We just had one of our long-term female officers retire. I believe we have eight now out of 51. Uh, We're we're well represented uh, across the board for both women and minorities. Uh, We we make it a a goal of ours to have a diverse workforce, clearly. Yep. Uh, we are looking for the best possible candidate, though, however. Exactly, yeah. When we have a candidate pool of 10 people coming in. We're looking for the best officer candidate we can have. If that's a woman, great. If it's a person of color, great. As long as you're the best candidate, we're going to hire you on. Yeah. Well, you, I was going to say, do you find minorities interested in Darien? And maybe I should even back up and be like, what interests? I kind of asked you guys this earlier. What draws someone to work in Darien? The town of Darien has always been highly competitive as far as the salary and benefit package. Clearly, it's run as a business. It's run very well as a business. And there's no more truism in life than that you get what you pay for. Talk to us about the landscape of, you know, crime versus, you know, peace here in Darien. Like, I know we are a safe town, but we're also on 95. I know you guys do see a lot of intense stuff, right? I, I mean, it, I, I, I joke with friends, you know, who or maybe in other police departments, larger cities that, you know, have a little bit more uh, higher of a cr- criminal activity. And I say even a small town in Darien, by the time your career's over, you pretty much have seen everything. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, you name the type of crime or victimization, and, and, and you've seen it after 20 years, for sure. 
I don't know whether I'm... It's hard to hear. I don't know what I feel about that. No. That's, that's the reality of life in any municipality, when, no matter how small. A lot of the crime, criminal activity is out of our control. Some of it, you know, the police have more ability to thwart some crimes than other crimes. Clearly, if crimes are happening behind closed doors in people's homes, the police have limited opportunity to affect that criminal activity until after the fact. Okay, so you make an interesting point. Do you think a lot of the low crime, I mean, obviously a lot of it is based on the fact that Darien is just, you know, it's a white collar, you know, it's a fluid town, right? It's, but are you guys doing preventative measures to maintain that? 100% it, it comes into play. Like examples. We, we are not a 911-driven community. We are not going from call to call to call. And uh, one of the officers on a, on a transfer from uh, the Bridgeport Police Department often tell us a story that when he would work 3 to 11, he would go out to his cruiser, turn on his MDT, his mobile data terminal in the car, and there would already be 8 to 10 calls waiting for him before he even got in the car and got a cup of coffee. We don't have that here, so we have the luxury for ample patrol time and to provide uh, good follow-up to criminal activity when it does occur. The officer typically is not leaving your house if a crime occurred because he has to rush or she has to rush to another, another call. So that's what we don't have. And a lot of it is, a lot of it, people know that the town at Darien police officers are generally out there, alert, awake, and we are looking for things that are out of the ordinary because we're not responding to another call every hour of the day. Right. I know we've talked about it. I don't know that you've done it yet to hire a, special, a specialist in narcotics. Is that like a burgeoning issue right now? We have talked about this, and we've had narcotics officers in the past. This is not a new... Uh, yeah, are you going to add one? Is that the... That, I should know this. That is our, our goal, to have another narcotics officer detective. You know, again, that is... Although they work here in Darien, they would work on a regional-type basis because that's how those cases are investigated. We don't investigate criminal activity involving narcotics in Darien in a vacuum. Right. right? It just doesn't... We and, don't have drug dealing on the corner. We, we right. just don't have that. That's so, good. That thing, that, thank you for that's that. That's very good. Um, but we, you know, I was going to ask actually about, and it came up this budget cycle about our regional responsibilities, or you know, not just within Darien's borders. You guys talked to us about that. What role do you play in helping Stanford or Norwalk or other communities when things happen? Well, first and foremost, we work very well with all the you know adjacent communities to us, but we do have. Um, mutual compacts with, I believe, Stanford and Norwalk Police Department. And then we work on a regional level with uh, several other Fairfield County agencies. It's smaller agencies, similar to Darien, and as an emergency response team. So that's basically SWAT in negotiation. Um, I was involved in that for nine years. And what's unique about that is, you know, we start, you're meeting other people. You know, so when we find out that something happened in Westport and something similar happens in Darien, and you reach out to those officers that you already know on that level. So it's, it's, a, it's still a small area. As the chief said earlier, it's, Connecticut's kind of unique the way it's broken up. Networking is real important with police departments right up the line. So what are some of the riskiest situations you guys have been put in? <laughs> yeah, can May you talk I, about that? Captain May, I'll start with you. You're, how old are you? I'm 48. 48, okay. Um... You know, there's, there's, there's the situations that may be even more dangerous that you, you didn't know you were facing danger. Um, even in Darien, there's been times where we pull our firearms, and you think that um, you may be pulling the trigger. Uh, I was involved in a, uh, what ended up thankfully just being a DWI, 
uh, and it was a chase. It went into Stanford in the middle of the night, and I ended up fighting with the guy on my own. And um, Physically fighting? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. And I, I dislocated and broke my shoulder Holy during, cow. The, during the fight. And you are not and, a small guy. That other guy must have been yeah, pretty big, too. I think it was more my, my error. <laughs> but um, <laughs> long story short, he very intoxicated subject, and um, I ended up in Stanford in a housing project, and I didn't know where I was. So I, would, I was telling the dispatch uh, where I had turned off and what the situation was and um, not knowing what I was still going to face. With an injury, I had drawn my service weapon and the guy was going back to his car and I didn't know if he was going back to get a weapon or what. And That was probably the, the closest I came to thinking that I was going to have to defend myself in that manner. Um, thankfully, some Stanford officers were notified and kind of had a general idea where I was and the cavalry came and we kind of took care of business after that. Was the guy trying to escape or is he going to get a weapon in his car? He didn't speak English, so I don't really know what his, there was no weapon in the car. Um, But as a police officer, you're faced with the unknown and sometimes you think of the worst happening and you have to be prepared for it. Absolutely. In a situation like that, is your heart beating a lot? Are you thinking about your family? Are you just like laser focused, like on the task? Um, it's hard kind of remembering uh, everything that was going on back, you know, during the incident. I do remember, you know, there's an adrenaline overload. And, you know, I just about passed out in the ambulance on the way to the hospital just because you're so exhausted, you know. Um, I, I do have a kind of, a, there was an awareness of what was going on around me. I remember looking to see if backup officers were coming and I could hear sirens and see lights, but they just didn't know where I was because I was down in kind of a, a parking lot. So there's... That's just one incident. There's there's incidents like that that have happened to several of our officers, you know. Well, um, what about the chief you, has chief? plenty of stories. Yeah. Well, this is a story that I've told before in public sessions, so I guess I'll recount it again. I was a new patrol officer, and our equipment was not as good as what we have now. Our radios were not as good, and we didn't even have issued portable radios when I started. You you kind of swapped them around, and I got I was dispatched to a call on a backcountry Darien road up in the middle of the woods on an unconscious man. That's the only, that's how the call came in. And back then, um, the police department ran the ambulance. Post 53 only ran an ambulance between three and midnight. And after that, you got two cops in an ambulance to come, no matter what your type of call was, a medical call, that's who you were getting. But this one, I, I get there and it turned out to be the basement, you know, an underage drinking party was going on, and the young man there had way too much to drink, and he had passed out. So I got, you know, I got my medical bag, and I put oxygen on him. Tenderly. Well, he woke up and decided he wanted to fight. So we're in a fin- semi-finished basement, and there's a few other kids there around, and he, he picked up a two-by-four, and he was whacking me good with the two-by-four. Oh, my gosh. I'm ducking and juking and trying to... And he backed me up into a corner against the washing machine where I couldn't go back any further. So now my options at that point were very limited. And I did draw my service weapon, and I have a distinct recollection of we, we carried revolvers at the time, and the hammer on, this, on the gun was coming back, and he was about to be shot. And whether you want to say it's the divine intervention or providence or fate, he passed out. Oh, wow. At that exact instance, and by the time he came back to again, I had him properly secured, and then off he went to the hospital. Wow. So that's the closest I've ever been. I mean, that's that's, a, that's early 30s, whatever, probably 37 years ago, and I can still recount it in amazing detail as to what happened. 
that story, I mean, that's it's crazy. It's funny, uh, not funny at all. I don't know why I said it's funny. That story, though, I've heard about this because it came up again when we talked when someone talked recently about the police accountability bill. Can you tell us what that is and how that relates or would have changed this two by four story? Because I feel like it would have been a different story. Probably in that exact scenario, the difference now today, this would all be beyond on body camera, right? There yeah. would there would be no dispute as to what happened, right? Um, an officer then as now is allowed to to use whatever force is required up to and including deadly force to protect his life or to the life of a third party that really hasn't changed and when you hear about police accountability uh, I am 100% convinced here in Darien we are above the curve on that as well we have always been highly accountable a lot of these things that you see happening across the country would and do not happen here because of our training because of our structure, because of our civilian oversight, and because we are a professional police department. Some of these videos that I do see from across the country, quite frankly, I cringe when I watch them. Really? I, I do, because you know, a lot of times I can tell, because I've received this training, as, as Captain Marin has as well, you can just see the officer sometimes just simply cannot process the information that's going on. You can tell in their eyes and you can tell in their face that they're just not comprehending what is happening. Right? We are not supermen. There is no S on our chest under our blue uniform. We, we don't have super analytical skills and the ability to process information probably better than any other reasonably astute person. What we do have is the training and you have to spend your downtime thinking about unpleasant things like that so when it does in fact happen that you are mentally and physically prepared to do what needs to be done. Even in this small town, it has happened and it will happen again. You go from instantaneously sitting in your car having a cup of coffee at 2 a.m. to tending to somebody who's just been stabbed in a gas station. Now that you know, it's happened to me in the course of my career. You go from zero to 60 in, in, in two seconds and you have to prepare your mind to do that. So a lot of police work is mental, mental preparation and the ability to process information quickly because you've thought about it beforehand. I guess that's your, I mean, that's the most amazing thing and the best defense you have. I mean, I watched the video from Columbus and was, I had a hard time following what was going on, watching it, you know, with my heart rate at 60 beats a minute sitting at my desk. I don't know how the officer could keep track of who was moving, who had a gun, who had a knife, who pushed who. I mean, it was crazy. And the fact that you're able to do that, that he was able to give a verbal warning before shooting, like the fact that you think of doing all that or you, that you're programmed to do all that is phenomenal. It's amazing. You guys are... One of the things, you know, the chief kind of mentioned this a few times now, Connecticut police officers as a, as a group are trained to a much higher level than most of the rest of the country. And even beyond that, you know, I don't know any other police department that's more highly trained than the Darien Police Department. That's just, I don't know about every police department, but we've been, um, compared to, you know, a lot of other agencies, we're, we're fortunate to have um, the, the funding to be able to send our officers to training. We, you know, there's a certain minimum standard that we're, we're required to maintain, but we, we seek out training far, far and above that. And I believe that helps. Ongoing training too, or do you, are you guys required to? We are required to do 60 hours of recertification every three years. And most of our officers get well above 60 hours of retraining and that runs the gamut from 
domestic violence to people with service needs to firearms to motor vehicle stops. Who requires it, that? Is it that is a state standard? Connecticut State does that. Connecticut State standard, and okay. it's always been the case over the course of my career that if you are certified in the state of Connecticut as a police officer, you can go to any other state in the union and get a comparative certification and begin a career there. And that doesn't happen in reverse. There's many states that you're, you're not going to get a comparative cert coming to Connecticut from some states where if we're going to Florida or we're going to California or we're going to Texas, they're going to look at Connecticut certification and say, if he's got Connecticut certification, he's going to be certified here in our state. So my, I mean, my layperson's like opinion of what's been going on is that these, these incidents that have happened across the country are, I mean, they're horrible, but I have to think that the officers involved maybe were known to have biases going into those events. How, I mean, it seems like hiring is probably the best preventative measure you can take, right? Hiring the right people to begin with. But let's assume that a mistake is made. Is it hard to get rid of a bad police officer? It is difficult. It's not impossible. And we have cut officers loose here in the Darien Police Department, and deservedly so. I, I've always been a proponent that if you tell someone what the rules of the game are and they, can't play the, they cannot play the game of policing, if you want to call it an art, a game, if you can't follow the rules, they're very reasonable rules, right? Most law and, and most case law is based on very reasonable interpretations of something that is either proper or not proper. So there are officers um, clearly that are separated from service for criminal activity or severe malfeasance. Those are the easy ones, right? It is a little bit more difficult for the ones that maybe don't rise to the level of, you know, criminality. Um, but under the police accountability bill and the new post-C standards, yes, there is, they have put new things in place that it is gonna be, uh, if you wanna call it easier, there are avenues for separating officers from the service. As you watch the, you know, the unsettling stories that come out across the country involving police. It, what do you think is going wrong? Like, what is the right solution to fix some of that? Training for one. You know, the, the George Floyd incident, I may not speak directly to it, but let me speak to it from a local perspective. What I saw on the video, we have trained positional asphyxia and excited delirium for over 30 years. Right, and positional asphyxia is drilled into every recruit's brain in recruit training and review training. You do not leave people on their chest. As soon as you have them secure and they're not combative, you have to get them up off their chest. Sit you know, in a seated position, head between the legs, so they can breathe. I'm not sure what happens in other parts of the country, but that has been our training paradigm for over 30 years. So if people ask me about the George Floyd incident, I said, that could not happen here, yeah. period. That length of time, because we are trained specifically to avoid that. That's awesome to hear. Now, and nobody, likes, nobody likes wrestling on the ground with people. We don't like that. Any, we just don't like it, right? But as soon, as soon as somebody is secure, they're, now I, I am responsible for that person until such time as I deliver them to a medical practitioner. I'm responsible. And I think our officers do a good job there, that once you have someone in custody, you now are responsible for their well-being. Even if you were fighting with the guy or gal five minutes before, you're responsible for them. And I think our folks understand that very well. 
do you worry? Like, I mean, I know that it says in your, on your website and, you know, and what we're hearing, like you, you use as little force as possible to solve a problem, right? And today with the police accountability bill ratcheting up the chances that you could be, you know, found guilty of using too much force. Do you worry that you have that, like, that extra second of hesitation and that that could, like, how do you go through that? How do you decide? I mean, thankfully, you, it sounds like you haven't had to discharge your weapons, but how do you make that decision and, and feel comfortable that you've given enough verbal warning, that you've done everything you could, that you could have reached for the taser but chose the gun? Like, how do you how But do you you're asking, too, that? like, does the bill now get in your head and make you second guess? Is that what you're saying, or am I jumping on you? Yeah, I mean, g- given the, the temperature in the nation, given the legislation that's coming out in, in Connecticut, like, do you worry about, like, taking that extra second? Hesitancy and the clouding of what is acceptable performance on a police officer's part, I know weighs on the minds of every reasonable police officer. Yes, it does. Again, getting back to my point where you have to spend your downtime when you're not actively performing your job to be thinking about these types of things, what you would do if this happened. You have to be able to train your mind to do that, and then when the time comes, you have to have the will to do what you think is right in that moment, and you have to have the backbone and the gumption to live with it once you do it. And, you know, maybe some people at this point in history said, I'm not willing to take that responsibility anymore. I'm going to do something else. So yep. you mean wake up every day willing to put yourself in harm's way on our behalf. And thank you, before I go any farther, for doing that. But then now you've got, you know, this additional burden of considering, you know, legislation, liability. And then on top of that, now we got the national temperature that's rising against police. Like, I'm sure that just reading about it, just seeing it on TV weighs on you. Are you feeling it locally, too? Or do you still, are you feeling the love in Darien? Is it mixed? Well, I, I never thought in the course of my career that we would have protests outside of the Darien Police Department like we had last summer. And we staffed them, and we were highly uh, respectful of people's First Amendment rights. Yes. Um, but some of the things that were being hurled in our direction were, were clearly uh, not warranted, in my opinion. I understand the thought process, and I, I understand and even appreciate people's beliefs. But some of these things are coming from people who simply don't have enough miles under the tires to know what life is really all about. And... For us to be lumped in with a group that, you know, now I wonder when I go in to get a cup of coffee, how many people in here are looking at me thinking that, that guy's a crook, or, or that guy is, you know, I, wonder, I wonder if that's, I wonder if he's a nice guy, or, or I wonder if he's one of those guys that, you know, it does, it does weigh on you. Well, you know, it's interesting. I follow um, Officer Dion Joseph in L.A. Do you guys follow him at all on Twitter? I don't know if you're Twitter fans. I don't really love Twitter, but this is I'm one guy I will pick up his tweets every day. And um, he's a, a police officer on Skid Row. And he, he just, he, he says the greatest stuff. And apparently, I mean, I don't know how many people knew of him until this week, but with LeBron James tweeting about the Columbus incident, Dion wrote a letter and like an open letter and said, listen, like, let's just sit down man to man and talk about this because I don't think you understand what it's like to be a police officer. And that's exactly what we're doing here. Like, we need to talk about this stuff, right? We're human beings. We're all trying to do good. I, I, I commend you. I mean, I did participate in one of the first walks from the Congregational Church downtown, and you guys were all so respectful, so kind. Everybody was so peaceful. It was really great. And I was there to support all my friends, you know. It's, 
it was a really lovely event. I'm so proud of us for having such a great event. You guys are a big part of that. We are proud that we allow for peaceful, peaceful assembly and freedom of speech. That's what we're here to defend part of it, right? Your right to disagree with the government or to disagree with us as long as it's within the parameters of the law. I'm thinking about you guys' families, too. Like, you know, we talk about what, what goes on here. Because you go home, your work doesn't stop at the end of the day. You don't check out, like you said. And they risk losing you. Every time you walk out that door, they don't know maybe if you're going to come back, right? And then and then to hear all this talk about police defunding, police are bad people, um, when they know. I mean, we're sitting in front of two model men. Um, so is it, I guess my question, what I'm getting at, sorry, gentlemen, is is it even harder for your wives to, like, kind of sit back and be in this environment or have they weathered it well or have they gotten vocal? I guess how have they responded to things? Well, I can tell you that it does weigh heavily on the spouses and I can tell you that from my mom and from my wife and you might behoove you folks to do a podcast with wives of police officers. Yeah. You might get a very different type of insight. Um, it, it does weigh on them and when family members get questioned as to, you know, is your husband or your spouse one of the people that's the bad cops or are they one of the good cops? When People ask that to your spouses? Uh, no, but I, I'm sure that they think that. And, you know, I, I don't really watch TV. I, I don't. And I, I don't watch news. I don't watch. I'll watch an occasional good. Met game and I'll watch my JM Dukes, JMU Duke football. But <laughs> uh, I, if, we, if we did follow all social media and news, you probably wouldn't get a wink of sleep right now. Right. Um, and a lot of it is just not entirely accurate. I don't mind bad press for police officers when it's accurate and balanced. Right, yeah, you said something to that effect, I think, in a quote this summer. It was brilliant. Fair, fair balanced, and accurate. If, if we made a mistake, we own it, and yeah. we move on, and we try to fix it. Accountability. We are, we are accountable, and we've always been accountable, and I, I and the people who work for me, if we make a mistake... We own it, and we try to fix it. Captain Mayor, what about you? You got young kids. I don't know if that's harder, or, or I don't know. I think it's hard to measure at, at their ages. Um, but, I, you know, I, I do think what they're seeing is, you know, at one point, maybe their friends might have thought that a parent being a police officer was a cool thing, and probably not as much now, you know. That breaks my heart. That was like one of the role models. You know, we think you're cool. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> right, that's what kids want to be. My, my little girl still does. We go to get uh, lunch at uh, Michael Joseph's a lot, and a lot of you guys go there because you're around the corner from Michael Joseph's, and there's usually a you know, you know, anywhere between three to eight police officers there any given day during lunch, and she still thinks it's really cool. Yeah, we tell I'd like her to cool. think that most kids still think that's very cool. I think that's more accurate. Yeah, correct. And what about your wife? How's she doing? I'm not. I'm not married. You're not married. No. Divorced? So, divorced, yeah. All right. So how old are your kids? Uh, I'm going to be 15 next week. My oldest daughter, uh, my son's 12, and my youngest daughter, who's FaceTiming about six times so far, <laughs> um, is 10. Feel free to check into that if you need to. <laughs> Talk to us about the you know unlocked cars, and like, this is your opportunity to give a public service announcement on this. Like It's really a big deal. Like it's a not broken just, record. But. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that they're getting broken into, right? That it's like linked to other bigger things. Well, the, 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 the main point that I like talk about every time I talk about this topic is the cars are not being broken into. None of them are right. being broken into. <laughs> They're being opened. They are being opened. And clearly it's an epidemic across not just Fairfield County, not just Connecticut, Westchester County. It is everywhere. This is kind of like 
entertainment for these loose-knit groups of kids, 16, 17, 15, 14. We've seen them for all, all ages, right? And I was just reading a New York Times article today that I found on my desk because I'm going through a stack of paperwork from Hartford. They arrested a 17-year-old in a stolen Volvo at 2 o'clock. They brought him and turned him over to a parent because he's a juvenile. And at, before 7 p.m. that night, they pulled over a Ford Explorer being operated by the same 17-year-old juvenile on a second stolen car. That's I mean, crazy. I mean, is this juvenile silliness? I mean, we all did. Well, maybe you guys didn't. You guys seem like good guys. But I, mean, I sure did my, uh, my tomfoolery as a kid. I mean, is it just kid pranks? Or does it get to a point where it's dangerous? Where, like, or you're, it's a waste of like, your tax dollars or like force? Having... People of any age prowling around any town in the middle of the night is a recipe for something going wrong. Eventually, something is going to happen. You know, down on Long Neck Point, we had cars being stolen. Officers were there. The cars were coming down, barreling down on the officers, went up on over the curb, around the police cars, and took off. And we make an attempt to stop them, but at some point, the way the statute is written and our policies are written, if the danger of the chase outweighs the crime that you're chasing them for. You must disengage and not chase that car anymore. Connecticut statute is also clear that if you have reasonable to believe that a stolen car is being operated by a juvenile, you cannot, under the law, chase that car. And you asked whether you, we thought it might be like prank type stuff. These yeah. cars from Darien that are being stolen are being involved in shootings, robberies. They're coming back with exactly. bullet holes in them. Yeah, so it's linked uh, to bigger we, things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then to answer your question about you know, the t use of tax dollars in our officers, be, there's days that our day shift is stuck in the report rooms doing reports their entire shift for all these overnight car burglars that have happened. Um, I was just reading through some reports. Our, our uh, investigative unit made an arrest of a 15-year-old West Haven uh, male for stealing a car here in Darien, one of two that was stolen the same night from the same driveway. And the car was recovered in West Haven, and our detective recovered a fingerprint off the rearview mirror, and it was linked back to a 15-year-old um, from West Haven. That happened in August of last year, and it took, working on this case, working with the State of Connecticut Forensic Sciences Lab, drafting up arrest warrants, and we didn't make the arrest all the way until just this past week. So it's a lot of work goes into this stuff. And, and the fact that a 15-year-old already had a fingerprint in the record system. on file tells you that he has been involved or she has been involved, I don't know, in a serious criminal activity before. Yeah. Okay, I actually have a question about the record for me. So I have a friend of mine um, who is a middle-aged black man living in Hartford. And we were talking about you guys coming on, and he's like, oh, I got some questions for the policeman. Like, you know, and he definitely... There's a perception there of them versus us in Hartford. And when you talk about records, he said that, I, he's like, I don't know how it is in Darien. I bet you guys can walk around there and you can get pulled over for, you know, maybe smoking marijuana or maybe having a beer and you just get a warning, you get off in Darien. He's like, but in Hartford, a cop sees you doing that stuff and you get um, uh, ticketed or uh, not arrested, but ticketed, but you, I can't remember the words he used. And he said, and I said, well, well, why? And he's like, well, it's to create a record. Cops want to create a record, and they particularly want to create a record for us. And so I just that sat with that. I've never really I've really absorbed that. But what do you guys think of a statement like that? Well, that is an, uh, an overly broad statement that, again, paints the police department, all police officers, into a mold that we are not. My mantra has always been that if you come to the town of Darien and you obey the law, 
you will have no issue with the Darien Police Department except perhaps a good morning, sir, or a good morning, ma'am. Um, well, you just said that like having a record because of what you guys did that work You had a, a fingerprint on record and a year later you were able to solve right. a crime So I, my, I'm asking because it, it seems like it's very smart what you guys are doing But then this opposite side this picture being painted is of we are tasked to protect the public and prevent crime That is what you're paying us to do and when we use reasonable commonsensical theory and application under the law. I don't apologize for that. What about the, the 2015 or 16 report that, you know, that state did and honed in on a few departments and ours was one of them that pulled over more minority operators for mechanical issues or whatever. Like, is that a practice we still follow? Our driving population is much more diverse than our population who lay their head down on the pillow here at night mm -hmm. suggests. Right. And I've worked with hundreds of officers here in the police department, and I can tell you without equivocation that we are not racially profiling people. We do make traffic stops. If, you don't, if you're driving down the post road and you don't have headlights on, you're going to get stopped in Darien. If you're driving down the post road and you have no taillights, you're going to get stopped in Darien. That's, that's right. just, and that's proper police work. But your point being is when you're stopping people, you have no idea who's in that car? A, a, lot, of, a lot of the time you, you don't know. Sometimes you can see if it's two or four or three. Sometimes you can't even tell that. What do Darien kids get up to? What, what, do, what do high school kids do? Is, there, is it silly drinkingness? Is it becoming a problem? Is it drugs? Like, what are you guys seeing in town? I don't think it really that part has changed all that much over the course of my career. You know, we, we know kids are going to be kids. The main thing that I like to talk about with kid stuff and, and accidents especially, when I first came on, everyone cringed if you had to work Thanksgiving weekend because almost invariably we would have a, fa a, a, a teenage fatality or a serious injury accident with oh kids coming home from college. Well, that's the biggest, isn't that the biggest party night of the year, the night before Thanksgiving? And everyone's home from college. Oh, wow. Right? And it, 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 there's, a, there's a few good reasons as to why that's kind of been put in the rearview mirror in its history. The cars being better, our enforcement efforts, and the fact that I think most kids are making better decisions. And Uber, too. I mean, even with adults. I mean, it's... Good to hear. That's you know? great. And actually, along those lines, like, can we talk to us about the SRO program, the school resource officers that we have in the middle school and the high school? Um, you know, how effective do you feel those have been, and, and where does that stand? We, we believe it's been very successful over the last, however, close to a decade now at least, and we've been through a handful of uh, school resource officers, both at the high school and now also at Middlesex School. Um, you know, nationally, the, the concept of SROs is getting some negative light at this point. Um, the chief and I were at a meeting last night where we spoke pretty significantly about the importance of our SRO program specifically and the advantages it's provided, I believe, the student body, the staff of the schools, and us, too. And where do you prioritize? I know that there's, um, you know, the purpose of them, I think, is for kind of keeping their finger on the pulse of the student activity and trying to get ahead of some of the problems we're having maybe with substance abuse and other things like that. But there's no question it's safety, too. I mean, I'd like to see them in all the elementary schools, to be honest, um, for safety purposes. Do you think that's necessary, or, or would you like to see that? Usually in a grade school, it's, it's an SSO, a school security officer. Yes. You're not doing as much mentorship right. with a second grader as you might do with a high schooler. but. 
I'm, I'm a fan of anything that provides safety. And what about, like, I thought you had got the sense, Taylor, that there was more substance abuse or more alcohol abuse in our system these days and the pressure, maybe based on these kids feeling more pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think our substance abuse problems are far from in the rear of your mirror, unfortunately. But the, the security side of things is what's on my mind with the school shootings that have happened and, um, you know, having heard, you know, from officers that, you know, having somebody on site would be the best way to protect these kids. Um, I don't, I don't think there's any, any way around that. Like I said, last night we were talking about the potential for, for retired officers or school security officers in schools. Very quickly, I believe that somebody in that capacity would know every kid's name. Sure. You'd be getting invited to birthday parties probably almost every Saturday. (laughs) You, you would know, you know, what trading card or trinket the kids are trading in this week. Right. Yeah. You know who likes Taco Day on Tuesdays, right? I know a lot of school security officers across the country that are retired officers, and you know, clearly they would do anything for those students. Yeah. You put an officer, and now you put them in charge of kids and responsible for kids' safety, you will have a police officer turbocharged whatever needs to be done to protect those kids. Sure. That's mm-hmm. just the reality of it. I was going to say there was something on your website I saw that was about partnering with the community and, you know, working with the community. So what other examples do you have of the ways you're partnering with kids or adults in Darien? Well, one of the things that we're looking to uh, get back going shortly here is is the cops and our coffee with a cop program. We haven't had it in over a year now because of the pandemic, but we've believe that's always been received very well you know we invite anybody who wants to come to talk about whatever they want to talk about with us for as long as they want to talk about where do they happen they happen at all different places around town at Nero or Sono Coffee or and how do people find out about it it's in the paper and posted on our website when's it going to start again well now that we're fortunately I think coming out of the pandemic that we probably can do one this summer once people feel comfortable at least, you know, we do them outside. It doesn't have to be inside. I, I steal the tagline from Cy Sims, the TV pitch man from the 70s, and say, an educated consumer is our best customer. And that is a truism for police work. The more people know what makes us tick and why we do what we do and why, even more importantly, why we don't do things, they're much, in a much better position to evaluate the effectiveness of their police department. So I'm not... I'll answer almost any question. Well, let's lighten it up for a second. I want to know your funniest stories from the force. I wish I prepared for that one. No, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I mentioned earlier, I guess this is one that might be PG-13. When I was a young officer, I was 20 when I came on, and the police department ran the ambulance. And we had a woman in labor call on Raymond Street. Oh, boy. I'm 20 years old. I'm not sure even how that stuff works exactly, (laughs) You know, to be honest with you. So, I heard about this once in I, biology. I, 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 I get there, and I, I, she's, she's in the kitchen. I believe her husband was away on a business trip, and she's ready to deliver a baby. Oh, my gosh. And she looked up at me. She says, Officer, I am so embarrassed. She goes, How old are you? <laughs> and I told her, you know, I, I guess I probably looked like I was 12 at the time. I said, Ma'am, I, I said, I, I'm all you got at this point. So... And I said, I kneeled down, and I remember to this day telling her, I go, ma'am, it's not that good at this end either. (laughs) (laughs) 
So those are the, those are the things that you know that you remember. And there's you know the the funny things. But you delivered the baby. We got her in the ambulance. We got her. You know, oh, we, okay. We, we're very fortunate here that we had at that point three hospitals all within six minutes if you really floored it. So we got her to St. Joseph's Hospital back then. Excellent. Before the but we've had officers actually you know assist in delivery of babies. Right? I have. Really? Oh, absolutely. You know, I've I've been involved in a few assistance with deliveries of babies, and I tell people all the time, I, I've held the hands of kids coming into the world, and I've held a lot of hands uh. with people going out. It's just that's that's a cop's job here. That's that's. Are you religious? I am. I, I don't I don't uh, hide that. Yeah. I I don't think I would be able to perform this job without uh, some measure of faith that what I'm doing is is God's work. Yes. What's your, uh, I mean, the cop question, what's your favorite coffee in town or favorite donut? I always try to dispel this myth. Cop, cops eat very few donuts. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm a donut fan. I like a donut, but very few cops actually consume very many donuts. You see them at the coffee shop because most cops love you coffee. coffee. Yeah. You know, some cops drink a lot of coffee. You know, I don't know if I'm disappointed, but I'm not seeing any mustaches here, and I haven't seen any. Oh, well, you got a good story. I got a, I have a story for you. I have always been clean shaven. Early on in my career, I couldn't have grown a mustache or a beard when I was 20 years old. You I could deliver didn't. a baby, but right. you didn't have a mustache. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't grow a mustache or a beard. <laughs> well, prior to me being the chief, we got involved with fundraisers for raising for autism. And or was this the Leukemia Society? One, the fundraiser? I'll give you the Leukemia Society, because we do a couple different ones. Up until maybe five years ago, six years ago, officers were not allowed to wear beards. That, that was changed by the police commission back. You could have a mustache, neatly trimmed, but you couldn't have a beard. Mm-hmm. So we, they, we ended up doing a fundraiser that during the months of November, December, January, February, if the officers wanted to donate $100, a month? It was $50 a month. $50, it was $50 a, month. a month. You could you could wear a beard for a month, two months, three months, or four months if you wanted to make a donation. Well, no that's way. Cool. Well, the police association got the bright idea, knowing that I'm not a fan of facial hair, got me to agree to wear a beard as a Leukemia Society fundraiser. And I think they raised almost $10,000 for the chief to wear a beard. And oh I did, gosh. in fact, have a beard for 30 days. Nice. <laughs> And not 30 days in one minute. It was for 30 days, but it was for a good cause. But it was good of you to do it. That's awesome. It, it was a one and done. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll do something else perhaps for a fundraiser, but it will not be growing the beard again. <laughs> in between questions here, I've been trying to think of funny stories. So I thought, <laughs> I, I thought they all seem to be coming back to animals for some reason, the ones I'm remembering. Animals are funny. So an officer and I had to go to get a bat out of an attic. I don't even remember the road it was on because I laughed so hard. So <laughs> there was an officer. calling a police officer to take care of a bat. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> the things you guys have to do. We have we have an officer who who I'm really good friends with, went to high school with, and we just we get a kick out of each other. So we're on this call. I think I was training him, actually. He started a little bit later than I did. We were trying to go up this attic, but the stairs weren't working properly. So I had to. I'm like, this is your show here. Show me what you got. You know, like, well, what should I do? I'm like, well, I don't know. Find a tennis racket or something, you know, or a bucket or something. She says, Eric, give me a tennis racket. And he's an excitable guy, so he's very animated. He's going up the stairs. And I have to hold these stairs because they're not working properly while he's climbing up. So he gets up. He's shining his flashlight. Can't find the light switch shining. He's, oh, there it is. There it is. So he's at the top of the landing. I'm still holding the stairs. 
and he starts to raise the tennis racket. And I can see now behind him, he's shining the light, the light on the bat. And the thing came at him, and it opened up like 15 oh times the size it looked like. <laughs> he jumped out of the attic, and I, had to, I caught him. I caught him <laughs> oh, my and God. And started running out of the house. Uh, it just, I mean, it is one of those things you had to be there. But, you know, you find yourself in these situations, and you just can't believe that you're here or how it started or how, how it's going to end. That's crazy. There's plenty of them that if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't yeah. believe the story. I had a lady call. I was working the desk one night, and the lady called and said, there, there's some kind of animal in my wall, and the nose is now coming out <laughs> through the wall. And I need you. To, I said, okay, well, ma'am, where are you calling from? She said, I'm calling from 226 Weed Avenue. I said, ma'am, Weed Avenue down by, you know, Stanford Line by Giovanni's? Yeah. I said, ma'am, that's in Stanford. She goes, yeah, 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 I know. I called Stanford police. They laughed at me and said, call Darianne. Maybe they'll come help you. <laughs> Oh my God, that's really funny. So, there, there's plenty of funny stories. A lot of them are, a lot of them are probably not fit for family radio or family TV. But there, there's a lot of funny stories here. Some you, you just have, you just have to laugh at them. Before you wrap it up, I would love to know: Do you have a succession plan? Well, I've been the chief for not even quite two years, but my main platform of being the chief is succession planning to leave the department better. And I found it, and I found it in very good shape. So I'm thinking I have a couple good years left in me. Um, I, I tell people all the time, right, if you like chocolate cake and you have chocolate cake on the table, you have to push away from the table while you still like chocolate cake. Captain Marin, you plan to be here for a while? Yeah, I definitely have a few more years. <laughs> my kids are young still, and um, I'm in my 26th year. And you just have me thinking, you know, 20, 25 years goes by. I, the way I measure it is, or can kind of gauge it, is I t we talk about, we tell stories about former officers, and you realize that guy has been retired for 13 years already. Can't be, can't be. Yeah. And when you're swearing puts in. things in perspective, yeah. When your wow. swearing in photograph was in black and white, you know you've been there a long time. <laughs> mine, mine is in black and white. So. That's cool. Yeah, so I saw another quote you put on your page. I loved it. That said, never regret a day in your life. Good days give happiness. Bad days give experience. Worst days give lessons, and the best days give memories. And you've given us great memories today. Um, I can't thank you guys enough for the work you do in our town, for putting yourselves in harm's way on our behalf uh, every day, for not sleeping, for worrying about whether or not your car is locked, and everything else <laughs> in between. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you do and for being with us on this podcast. We appreciate you being here. and uh... Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks, boys. <laughs>